0: what's up everyone welcome to the masters of community podcast my name is david Spinks, founder of cmx and vp of community at bevy each week i bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level thank you so much for joining me let's dive into today's episode before we dive into this week's interview i wanted to give you all a quick heads up that the 2021 edition of cmx's community industry report is now available we had over 500 community professionals and teams participate in this survey which aimed to answer questions like, what is the value of community to businesses and what are the most popular metrics used for measuring community? We looked at the impact of COVID-19 on communities and virtual events, and we dove into how community teams are investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and for the first time, gathered data on the representation of different races and ethnicities in the community industry itself. There are loads of interesting insights in this report, and you can download it all for free today. Just head to cmxhub.com Again, that's cmxhub.com, and you can download the report there. All right, let's dive into today's interview. Today's interview is with Eric Martin. Eric's been in the community industry for as long as I have. He started at Reddit back in 2008, and over the course of his career, he went on to work at Depop, WeWork, Airtime, Nike, and now he's the chief community officer at Teal, a really cool platform that's helping people build more meaningful careers. And we talk about a whole range of different topics in this one. First of all, he's had so many different experiences with everything from consumer to tech to coworking spaces. And so we talk about what were the similarities and differences across running communities for all these different kinds of programs. We talk about why we think the industry is blowing up today and why so many companies are finally buying into community. He shares his vision for the chief community officer role and how he sees his role developing at Teal over time. And make sure to listen to the rapid fire questions at the end as he has a ton of really practical tips and tricks for how to build your community You're going to love it. Let's dive in. Eric, welcome to the Masters of Community. Thanks. Really excited to be here and chat. Of course. We've known each other a very long time. You've been in the community industry for, I think, longer than I have. And you've been in a range of different companies and different kinds of products and different kinds of consumers and customers. So for those who don't know the legendary Huey Priest, I would love to know why is that your Twitter handle and uh, what is your background and community? How did you get to working on Teal today?
1: When I was in college, I kind of worked as a side job working for a promotional goods company. So the company back in North Carolina that made uh, you know coffee mugs and T-shirts and branded golf balls and things like that. And for unknown reasons, anytime they had to do a sort of monogrammed sample, the name that you know they would use was uh, Huey Priest. So being a poor college kid, um, I wore, you know, like t-shirts and had, you know, coffee mugs and stuff that had Huey priest on it, just cause that was the sort of a default sample name. And then when it came time to pick, uh, my, my username for, uh, whatever IRC or whatever the message board was at the time, I just kind of liked the sound of it and, and stuck with it. So been using it ever since. So that's, uh, you know, 20, 20 some years by now.
0: Love it. I
1: kind of started, uh, my career in the film industry so i was working doing marketing uh, for you know small films indie films, docs, foreign films, things like that, things that didn't have a budget. And so if you have these sort of niche, you know, film or some music projects too, the way you market those is you go to places where people who like, you know, gritty documentaries hang out or people that like Korean thrillers are, and you say, Hey, you liked this other film, we've got a new one coming out. So that was early, you know, that was early online communities, message boards, um, early social media. So that's kind of how I got involved in online communities professionally. Um, I was just you know, interested on on a personal level as well. Then got involved in Reddit early on, got to know the founders, uh, became the first community manager and the uh, fifth employee um, uh, early on, and then ended up staying at Reddit for six years, eventually became the general manager. Um, Reddit was still pretty small, but I left in 2014, so there were only about, I think, 75, or I don't know, less than 100 people when I left, but uh, then I was overseeing community marketing, doing some ad sales poorly, uh, all kinds of stuff there. So I got to see, uh, you know, a lot of amazing things at, at uh, Reddit during that growth. After Reddit, uh, I went to an amazing company called Depop. Um, Depop, uh, if you're not familiar with it, you should be. It's an amazing uh, sort of fashion marketplace, uh, mostly secondhand stuff, uh, mostly clothes, you know, super popular with, with Gen Z. Uh, it started in Italy and then got big in the UK, uh, and I came on to help launch it in the US. Um, but really, you know, sort of like a Instagram with a buy button or like a more social ebay, but but really a, a community and that you you follow people not categories of things If uh, I knew David was roughly the same, you know, wore the same size clothes as I do and I was really liked his style I would I would follow David and I'd be interested in you know, buying or checking out how he uh, You know the looks he put together and, and buying stuff. He was selling and vice versa. So really enjoyed that. Um, Then after that, I went to WeWork where I worked on community there, Um, really focusing on uh, how do you build community and connections between people working in different buildings, different cities, different countries. How do you help people who are, you know, the only graphic designer at a small company, find other people to talk shop with, again, in the building in the city. After WeWork, work went to go work at Airtime, which is a Sean Parker's social video group chat app, kind of like kind of like house party. Um, worked there for a little bit, uh, did marketing as well as community. Uh, after that, I went to Nike. Nike, I was an entrepreneur in residence. I was focused actually on a older adult market and got to work with a lot of amazing community builders in the sort of fitness space who were um, tended to be you know older adults themselves, uh, fitness coaches, yoga instructors, swim coaches, all kinds of amazing people. Uh, And then after that, yeah, reconnected with Dave Fano, who I worked with at WeWork, and he told me he was going to start a company that was uh, focused on helping people with career growth. Um, So signed on board and have been working at Teal for about a year and a half now. Wow.
0: Well, based on like all the companies that you've chosen to work with in the past, everyone should definitely keep an eye on Teal because you seem to have a knack for, you know, joining companies that are going to just blow up and become really huge. Being first 100 at Reddit is pretty wild.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I've i been super lucky and super fortunate.
0: Awesome. So having such a wide range of different kinds of communities and different kinds of companies, what have you identified that's the same across all these different kinds of communities? And what's different, right? Because building community for a fitness company like Nike versus Teal and tech or a social platform like Reddit, I'm sure it can feel very different building community in each of these companies. So what have you identified?
1: The simple definition of community that I find you know useful and it's not the only definition out there, but the, the one that's useful for me is just where there are you know members or customers or users talking with each other or interacting with each other directly. And so I'll start with what's been the same for me personally um, and why I am still super excited to be in this industry. And that's you know, no matter what, I loved and enjoyed talking and interacting and meeting new members even, you know, days when I was burned out, or, you know, days when I wasn't happy, sort of a career wise, or, or with what was going on at the different companies, I still loved meeting new users at all the different places I've worked. So that hasn't changed. And, um, you know, that's why I love this industry, just getting to meet new people. As far as like how community works, uh, you know, a few other things, I think, have remained the same. One is that I've been reminded over and over again that the sort of community is always smarter than you are, meaning myself, the individual, but also sort of the company um, in a sense. And that if you're really building products not just for users, not just for a community, but with a community, they'll really, you know, lead you in the right direction, especially in, in sort of early stage startups or or when you're launching something new collectively the group of people is going to be smarter than any one individual or even small group of people so you know I kind of think like nine times out of the ten uh, whatever the community wants to do is the right is the right choice so it's uh, important to recognize those one out of ten situations when when you have a different perspective or, or more information and, and can make a different path but in general the community um, you know is is smarter than you are so that's always remained the same. Uh, another thing that's always remained the same is even in situations where I've had a lot of resources, we've never really had the full insight in terms of data and instrumentation and metrics that one wants when they're analyzing community. So um, I still think it's something to strive for, but being able to really understand, you know, how community impacts different parts of the business is is always a sort of unfinished task. Again, even in situations where I had a lot of resources um, and data scientist and whatever instrumentation I could ask for. If we're dealing with humans, there's a lot of variables going on, there's all kinds of different ways people interact um, and get involved in a community and just being able to track in this sort of ideal way that, that often gets talked about by people who aren't necessarily working in community but have to interact with it is a, I, I don't think it's, at least in the foreseeable future, it's, it's gonna be a, a fully a 100% complete. So that's been the same. Another thing that's been different is is just the ability to get resources, for sure. So depending on at places where, you know, everyone at the business understood the community, there wasn't a learning curve or there wasn't a, uh, you know, you didn't have to explain the value of the community. It was just sort of taken as a core principle, you know, directly or indirectly. So somewhere like Reddit, at least early on, most of the employees came from the community. They were users before they were... Uh, staff members, uh, I I fell into that category. Even people working in in departments that didn't necessarily interact with community really, you know, understood the value, understood the importance. At other places where people didn't necessarily interact um, with community or with with the users as much, much less sort of experience those interactions that they had with each other. You just needed, you know, that's not good or bad, but there's just more work that needed to be done in terms of um, explaining the value, explaining the importance, explaining what resources were needed.
0: That's super interesting. There's a few things in there that I want to dive into. First of all, I think what you said earlier about the community. We just had that chat the other day with Jesse Middleton at uh, the Community Fund, and he was saying, you know, the customer isn't always right, but the community is. I'm curious, do you find that to be true in practice? Because I think a lot of the time, it's true for the same way it is for customers as it is for a community in that people don't always know what they need. When you ask them like, hey, do you need a community or what do you want the community to look like? Do you find that people are able to tell you exactly what they want or is it up to you as a community builder to figure it out or like just understand their problems deeply, but you have to kind of come up with the solutions for them. They can't tell you what the solution is.
1: I think it's a little bit different than with customers, and and obviously those two overlap quite a bit uh, in in a lot of cases. But I think when I think about the community always being being right or always being smarter, again that's that's a little bit of a an unfair statement because um, you know the the community will have different ideas, and and sort of it's it's up to you know whoever's working in community or, or leading product or whatever the case is to to choose which which sort of paths to follow. But I think what I mean, when I say that is is the people who are really invested in the product, the people who are using the product in new ways that n- weren't necessarily intended by the you know with the original design or with the original plan. Um, the people that are using it in new you know in new markets, in new personas. I think you know there's this dance you do with the community as far as you know, especially if you're you know again early stage that's what i mean when i say the community is always is always right they will lead you towards where the real magic is in a way that i don't think is necessarily true when you're when you're just interacting with people who are who are paying or you know avid customers um, there's a certain investment that people who are in the community will do i don't know they come out with invested but fresh eyes they also can really help out in terms of understanding when things have changed so People who are community members can really say, hey, this is, you know, there's this experience, this feeling, this vibe, this whatever that used to happen that's missing now um, in a way that I think is hard for us on the sort of community management or or product or company side to see because we're too close or we just don't have the right perspective.
0: So I think that's
1: another area where, you know, the community is, is usually right.
0: Got it. So it kind of gives you a more real look into what people actually want and what they're feeling in the moment. Um, I'm curious, what was it like building community at Nike? It's, it's such like a brand that has like a rabid following and fan base. Um, but, you know, I don't know many people who work at Nike. For those of us who work in tech, it, it seems like kind of this black box of what what is the actual kind of community programs look like there. I know they're like they run clubs. Super interested to hear about like your focus on, on the older generations, older communities. What was that like?
1: To be clear, I was working in a sort of uh, uh, you know, innovation unit, uh, incubator type unit inside Nike. So I can't really speak to some of the, the larger programs at the, at the sort of main, right. main company. But from my understanding, I mean, I also think when we talk about community, there's a, there's a big difference between companies, products you know, communities in terms of infrastructure that serves an existing existing community that would exist without the brand or without the company or the community builders. Most sports fall into that category. There's an existing community of, you know, high school runners or of older pickleball players or, you know, uh, people that love tennis. And companies then create products for that niche, um, sometimes with they end up sort of being a focal point and providing infrastructure for fans of that sport to, to form a community and, and and interact with each other directly. And sometimes they don't, I think in general, you know, Nike really focuses on the, on the elite athletes, um, whether that's at the professional or amateur level. And to be honest the, the elite athletes actually have a, a different perspective than what the, you know, average person like myself, has. So, you know, I, I like my shoes uh, even when I'm playing, you know, sports, I like my shoes to be comfortable. Professional athletes, that's not their main concern. They want their shoes to be tight. They want to feel the court or the, or the track or whatever. Um, So there really is a difference, I think, uh, between the, the sort of elite users in that case, the same way you, you probably find with, you know, sort of power users of, of any, of any product or service. But I think, you know, Nike does an amazing job just with those communities of elite athletes. So, you know, I got to go, a a friend had, their uh, son was in a cross-country tournament that was sponsored by Nike for, you know, high school runners. And man, they really made those kids feel amazing. They, they put on this great experience where the kids go to the, you know, they go to a locker and they have all this great equipment in there and, you know, they got a tour of the campus and, and they really got to meet other other sort of elite athletes in their field. So I think that works really well. Um, I don't necessarily think that, the, you know, there's much focus on sort of the grassroots Sort of you know community interacting with each other directly. It's it's really a, a different approach um, that obviously works really well for them. It's more
0: like a field marketing than community in a way.
1: Yeah, oh, I mean, there's definitely community, and and you know I I, I love uh, run club, and I think you know there's there's sort of that provides infrastructure for people to you know especially people who are you know just taking up running or move to a new city and want to find other people. Yeah. But just in general, those those sort of sports verticals you know they have plenty of infrastructure and aren't looking for the the brand necessarily to provide that right. um but they are you know in terms of the company running amateur basketball leagues providing you know these amazing events and experiences for you know elite elite athletes but not so much on the uh, on the consumer side
0: that's such a what did you learn about building communities for older generations? Because it feels like such an underserved market and there's like a ton of opportunity to build community in that space. Absolutely.
1: One of the things I learned is that it's not that different. You know, it's very similar. The concerns, the the problems, the excitement, um, the interactions are, are very similar, you know, no matter what demographic you're working with. And so, with older adults, I, I think that's the same. I, I do think there is this interesting phenomenon, especially with the people I worked with, where I don't think many of the people I worked with would consider themselves community builders, nor would they consider themselves to be digitally or online savvy. Although, by any objective definition, they absolutely are. I just think you know, culturally, there's there's ageism and there's sort of these these stereotypes that actually end up, you know, affecting the, the the people who are building community, who are connecting people themselves. Uh, they don't think, so they'll say, oh, I'm not that tech savvy, or oh, I, I don't really understand, you know, internet communities. And I'll be like, you manage, uh, an, you know, you manage 200 clients who all know each other and you work with them on, you know, uh, getting in shape and weightlifting and they're spread around the world and you do that using you know like spreadsheets and email like you're absolutely 100% a community they builder. Sound like um, they
0: sound just like us. <laughs> no tools, just have to manage manage ecosystems without any support.
1: Exactly. But but I think just you know there's so much cultural baggage associated with older adults and technology. They're you know it's hard for them to see themselves that way. So that was a lot of the challenge. I, I, I think something interesting too is just, I worked with some groups of older adults, just getting them to check out brand new products. And there's something interesting that we all know uh, in, in sort of the, the community field or people who you know, hang out on product Hunt and places like that is when, when products get launched, they're usually fairly simple, right? They're basically an MVP or an early version. They don't have that many features. They're much easier to pick up and understand once things get more more mature, they get features added, there's different use cases added, there's complications, they're harder to pick up because there's just more there, there's bloat, it's complicated. And so there's this other sort of, you know, just cultural phenomenon where older adults in general, not all, but tend to... You know, first interact with products once they sort of cross that chasm and hit the more mainstream audience. And by that time, the products are, are more fully fleshed out; they're more mature, and they're actually harder to understand. Um, if you or I picked up Facebook right now, having never seen it before, I think we'd probably struggle a little bit because it's actually like fairly complex. But we've had the benefit of of slowly learning that that interface and the different parts and the sort of Conceptual frameworks that the products built on over you know a decade and so that's maybe an extreme example but I found when I would show you know brand new products uh, that were just launched to older adults. One, the products were a lot simpler and they were able to pick it up uh, much easier. And two, there was less of a, there was less pressure because this wasn't a product they had heard about on the news or a product, you know, their children or grandchildren had told them about. This was like something they'd never heard of and, you know, may not exist in six months. So mm. I don't know. It was just more of a fun, playful experience, which that's the same reason I like trying, you know, new products that just get launched is because you don't really know what
0: to expect yeah. or
1: how fun it's going to
0: be. And they're not like comparing it against all the other technology. They don't have a lot of the same biases. So exactly. it sounds like older adults make for a great beta testers. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think any group that is on the frontier, on the edge, you know, an extreme use case or a, a underrepresented use case makes for great beta testers because they're going to they're gonna see things you didn't think of. They're gonna they're gonna see things that you didn't necessarily you know have the same perspective when building. Um, they're gonna pick up problems or complications in the onboarding that you didn't think of. So, yeah, I, I absolutely believe older adults make for great beta testers.
0: So switching gears a little bit, or going back to something you said earlier about one of the things that you've seen be consistent across all of your experiences is the lack of tools and resources. Um, or at least a lack of tools around data and understanding communities, which makes me sad. But I think a lot of things are changing right now. And so we've both been in this industry for a long time. Why do you think is communities blowing up now? Like, What changed in the last year that like this drum that we've been banging for so long finally clicked and now everyone's investing in community?
1: Yeah, I... I don't see it as much as like what's changed in the past year. I think it's just sort of the culmination of changes that have been happening over a longer period of time. So, you know, over the last decade or or last 20 years, um, it's become easier, especially for really early companies or early sort of initiatives, it's become easier to make a space, a platform where users can interact directly with each other. That's always been possible, you know, even pre, you know, internet. But it was much harder and took more resources, both in terms of time and expenses. Now, with some of the you know the no code and out of the you know sort of off the shelf uh, community building products, you know a one person you know nights and weekends startup can can easily create a platform where you know a significant number of people can interact with each other. Again, it hasn't happened uh, just in the past year, but over time, that's reached sort of a critical a critical point. I also think we've reached a critical point with people who've grown up with you know sort of online communities and online marketplaces as a established given thing. When I grew up, you know, Wikipedia, YouTube, Reddit, whatever, these are all fairly new things. But you have now a generation that's grown up with those as established norms. Um, so I think that framework. And that foundation, again, has helped us reach reach a critical point.
0: That's a really interesting point that I haven't heard before. Actually, it's like the millennial generation uh, also like hitting a point where a lot of people who are becoming more senior within organizations and taking leadership roles are from the millennial generation. And so now people who are in positions of power within business are people who grew up with social technology as a default. Exactly. And communities kind of ingrained into how they think.
1: Huh. I think as the community space has gotten bigger and more professionalized, you know, organizations like CMX and, and all the work you've done over the years has has also contributed to creating a true industry that that both helps insiders and people working in the space, um, you know, improve their talents, uh, get to talk to each other. I mean, community people working community are notoriously bad at creating community yeah. for themselves. Sort of like a cobbler's yep. cobbler's kids' shoes uh, uh, metaphor there. Yep. But, you know, organizations like CMX have really helped um, create that space where now community members can talk to each other. And also it allows outsiders as a way to get in and at least, you know, understand the basics, have a place where they can do, you know, customer development or where they can get, you know, trained up. Um, So I think that's contributed uh, quite a bit as well. And then I also think in terms of like the you know, investment by venture capital and things like that, uh, and investment by by companies and founders. I also think, you know, part of the story there is that traditional marketing has, has slowly started to have diminishing returns as well. Hmm. You know, the cost of acquisition on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, Google ads or email lists or SMS messages, these things have all, you know, sort of, again, reached a point where it's, it's pretty hard, um, SEO, all these, you know, things that were uh, pretty tried and true marketing tactics. Only just a few years ago, are still great viable tactics, but they're they're harder. There's no sort of uh, magic magic you can do there, so that made you know sort of uh, by comparison, building and investing in community and organic word of mouth uh, more attractive. Mm.
0: Do you think that it's a problem for community to be perceived as this like next marketing, right? Like TechCrunch just published this article with the headline: "The CCO is the new CMO, uh, the Chief Community Officer." does that end up hurting community teams though in that they're just expected to be like another marketing team
1: uh maybe I I think you know in certain situations at companies that could hurt I, I don't know I mean I I, I read that article and I, I thought it was interesting but I was kind of surprised that it provoked so much conversation and and I don't know the, the other thing I I th- that's funny to me is like CMO is also fairly new before the 1960s, CMOs didn't exist because you couldn't you didn't really have mass media for a CMO to oversee and streamline and and direct uh, And it wasn't you know super common for larger companies or smaller companies to have CMO until the I don't know early 90s So okay, that's that's you know 30 years ago, but it's you know relatively not that long um, So, you know, it's not like CMOs been around uh, you know for hundred years or something like that,
0: right? It's interesting how quickly things can feel like the norm. So when we talk about chief community officer, people are like, you know, they can't even imagine that being part of an organization. But you taught me this, that even the chief executive officer, the CEO, is a relatively new role in the world of business.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, CEO... You know, has really only been around for a hundred years. Before that, you had the Henry Fords and the uh, Rockefellers and and the the Henry Ford Juniors and you know the these sort of like founder you know kings and their family you know running uh, you know the largest companies in the U.S. Um, you had other models outside of the U.S. So this sort of professional you know chief executive has really only been around for for a hundred years and really only been popular since the sort of uh, 40s and 50s so even that is is not that old. Um, so I, I think that uh, the, the uh, yeah it, it's just important not to view those things as calcified and I don't know I, I I don't necessarily know what the what the future of you know executive c-suite leadership will look like but I would just encourage people to uh, uh, take that historical perspective and realize like it's not written in stone and there's probably better ways to, to organize things than what we're using today.
0: Absolutely. And so you are a chief community officer. Um, We're starting to see that role actually become a reality more and more. Curious, what does that role mean to you? How do you see it as as far as like your vision for it and responsibilities and and how it will continue to develop at Teal?
1: Just for context, I mean, Teal is, Teal's a Platform for career growth. Uh, we have we have community. We have guidance. We have some software and tools that help people manage, you know, their job search, their career growth. So, and and Teals, you know, less than 20 employees. So we've been around for less than two years. So just to put that in perspective, I mean, I'm I'm the chief community officer, but you know, we we have a relatively small team. But what it means, and, and the reason why I think it's important um, to the extent you know titles are important, is because. What it signals is that community is a central element. It's a central pillar. It's a part of our DNA. It doesn't, you know, it reports to the CEO, and I think that's important. Um, you know, the titles themselves are more for you know external usage, but but internally, it's like okay, community is not just a part of marketing, or just a part of support, or just a part of operations, or just a part of product. It is its own thing that has its own, uh, you know, its own scope, its own metrics, its own contribution to the business. And I think that's important—that uh, it's its own its own thing, it's its own you know sort of periodic element that can't be divided uh, further or or you know combined with something else. Uh, and so that's why I'm I'm excited to, you know, to have that title and to see more and more companies uh, really making community its own department, even if that's a department of of you know one or two. Mm-hmm.
0: And going back to what you called out about like not having the data and the tools, what are the tools that you wish existed right now in the space? What are the tools that you think community teams are still lacking and re- would really need to be successful if we're going to make community this well established, you know, department within a company that that's really able to execute on a high level?
1: Whatever the tools are, what I think is often missing is sort of relative metrics or or you know, benchmark metrics so we we often use you know absolute people spend this much time people you know have this you know number of engagements um this number of referrals Uh, i think what's more helpful to determine and you know community health is okay what what's that number relative to the you know to the top five percent of users or what's that number relative to users that convert to a premium product you know what is the you know and in, in being able to look at different segments based on you know where they are in the percentile of overall users or where they are compared with you know a comparable baseline or benchmark um that's fitting for that industry and that stage and that platform you know too often we just use this sort of absolute numbers and, and try to you know guess or come up with goals or kpis from there but I think more important is saying, okay, here's here's the segment cutoff for users who are, you know, the top five percent most engaged, um, and now let's try to get another five percent of users up to that number, or um, let's try to make sure that you know we raise the floor in terms of uh, in terms of the the users who are who are less engaged, um, rather than the sort of absolute numbers.
0: Do you think you could do that today with a lot of the tools? Like the tools will show you who the top, yeah. you know, five percent of your active members are, right? You
1: can, you can, and there there are better and better tools out there. I just think it's it's hard, especially when you're looking at you know a company like Teo. We have we have Slack. We use Circle for our sort of knowledge sharing forum. We use Live Zoom. Uh, obviously, people respond to us over email, over social media. So being to combine, being able to combine all those things, uh, you know, also. Being able to come pull in uh, stats from our actual software, we have a job tracker, we have a uh, resume builder that people use, um, we have a personality assessment. So being able to just kind of pull all of those things together and and see a a comprehensive, you know, sort of holistic view and segment based on different types of engagement, and different you know personas. Uh, that's it's doable uh, in theory, but it takes a lot of work and it's hard to have that in real time.
0: Totally. It's two levels. that I kind of see it. It's It's the community level of engagement. How do we get tools that give us better insights into how people are participating in our community and being able to measure it and identify members who are like an opportunity to be more engaged, but they just aren't yet. So you can focus on them, identifying who dropped off and being able to onboard them better. So it's like tools that really understand community activity and the different levels of that experience and can help us deepen engagement and identify where to place our focus as community builders. And then the second level is tying it back to business. So for Teal, it's, you know, career opportunities and jobs and things like that. But it's, you know, how do we tie it back to support? How do we tie it back to marketing? Which like everyone pretty much uses Salesforce for the most part, at least on an enterprise level. HubSpot's very popular as well. So it's like getting community tools to talk to these tools that everyone uses to track their customers and sales is is a huge gap that for whatever reason still just has not really been figured out.
1: And then you have the same, you know, community has the same problem that, you know, marketing and and even sales sometimes have, you know, in terms of like what actually drove someone to convert or someone to sign up right. at your attribution. attribution, right? So, I mean, when, when we have a, uh, when I interact over Zoom with Teal members, um new ones, I I'll, I'll always ask them like, hey, how did you hear about Teal? And it usually involves... Some sort of word of mouth, uh, you know, either someone actually told them about it in you know some sort of direct real time interaction, or someone posted on LinkedIn or someone posted on Twitter. Um, so you know those type of things, w- even if we can't track it in an attribution sense, you know, we know sort of organic word of mouth is is how most people find out about about teal, and and you know being able to track those things certainly helps make business decisions on on whether to and how to invest in community and what type of community events and engagements, you know, drive drive the most uh, referrals or signups or whatever the, uh, you know, is your is your key sort of marketing growth metric there. But you have the same problems you have with with other types of marketing um, efforts that it's 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 hard to track. Humans are messy. We're all on different platforms and different devices. And um, so I would just hope internally community is not held to a uh, a higher standard uh, in terms of attribution and and tracking the data flow than other departments at a at a given company
0: which like for some reason we are right like it's the same problem that sales and marketing has it's it's how do we know someone purchased our product was it because of the ad they saw was it because they read this article was it because they came to our our marketing events you know we have like the first touch and the last touch right so what was the first touch that got someone into the funnel And what was the last touch? Usually in sales, in in B2B enterprise at least, it's like the last touch is a a sale closing a deal. And it's the same problem that they have. But I guess one interesting thing is that marketing and sales, they work with a funnel, right? So funnels are generally gonna be unidirectional. It's people moving through this journey or through this path. Whereas community is actually much more complex. It's not just one direction. It's a network of people interacting with each other. And your goal is to identify these connections between people and how that impacts the business. So in some ways, maybe it's that complexity of community as an interconnected network that makes it harder to track. Yeah. And and I think there's people
1: sign up for and buy products for all different reasons as well. But I think people come to community and interact with community spaces for a pretty, pretty wide range of reasons. And they also were, they're inputting more data. They're bringing more, they're, they're investing more time in a certain way. And, and that's, you know, tracking that or measuring that or accounting for that is, is difficult. That's not to say that we as community professionals shouldn't try to model and track and be able to understand and, and attribute all of these things. I just think, you know, you have to, you have to realize like, you'll never fully get there either, at least, uh, in the foreseeable future, um, and and to not let that be an excuse to make to make decisions or to make your case for more resources or to do a certain type of thing, like we have to be able to show the business case. But I just there is no sort of a holy grail in terms of tracking and instrumentation as, that I've seen.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a holy grail, but holy grails by definition are somewhat unattainable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even like the largest organizations in the world are still trying to figure out how do we set up our CRM to like perfectly track all the people that are listening to us and our customers and prospects and renewals and all the different things that might influence that. Like there's multi, multi, multi billion dollar industries dedicated to solving this problem and it's still you know, no one's ever gonna have a perfect window into exactly how they're interacting with everyone. But yeah, I think um, I think community is on its way though. And I think, I think we're gonna, about to see an explosion of tools in the next year, honestly, year to two years, because now that all these companies are building this stuff, the next logical question that they're all asking is like, how do we track it? And where there's opportunity, there will be startups and new technology built to solve that problem. Absolutely. I'm especially interested in, in
1: being able to track community sort of artifacts or community ripples in the outside world. So, like when I worked at WeWork, one of the things I, I found really fascinating to look at was how often people mentioned WeWork in public job postings. So, um, and and what they mentioned. So, if you're hiring and you you know are in Dallas and you say, Hey, we're you know, the company is a, a law firm or, you know, whatever, a gaming startup. And, you know, we're located at this WeWork office building. Okay, that's one thing. But if you say, hey, we're at this WeWork office building and it's great and you can meet all kinds of other interesting people and there's great coffee and whatever, that means something else. And so, you know, I track the number of times they mentioned community in different markets and kind of tried to compare and contrast. You know, and obviously there's there's other variables involved, but where did people mention community the most relative to the total number of job postings that mentioned we work? So I always kind of try to see what are those, you know, to the extent you can track those sort of organic ripples, um, and and how do people talk about it? You know, how do people explain a lot of these community experiences and products are, are hard to explain? You know, I worked at Reddit for six years, it's been around for Fifteen years, it's still kind of hard to explain. People still argue about what it is. But I was always curious in how, what language people used when talking to their peers. Um, Same with something like Depop or, or even teal. You know, I'm I'm very curious how how do people explain it to someone else when they're talking to a friend? Um, And to the extent you can track that, I think that's interesting. Uh, Not just to measure, you know, sort of word of mouth, but also again, the community being smarter than we are, um, understanding how people present it to their peers is is really illuminating.
0: Yeah, that truly is the holy grail, right? <laughs> that's good. If we could track that, that's gonna be gold. Like for CMX, we often talk about our missions to help community professionals thrive, advance the community industry. So there's some things we have data on, on like an industry-wide level, cause survey and we understand our team's growing, our team's getting more buy-in, um, more investment, things like that and we can't attribute that to our own work necessarily but you know our goal is to have that impact on the industry and so we can track that but like a metric that we would love to track is like how many people got a raise how many people got promoted how many people did get a job through CMX like these things that would tell us if CMX is actually helping people grow in their career and and get more resources and and move up the ladder but like all we get is anecdotal evidence and people letting us know that it had a big impact and i mean there there is an obsession in the world of business with tracking everything and i think community might be a thing that challenges that norm a little bit because the truth is there's a ton of value that just you kind of just have to like feel it like you can feel if it's working the data is not going to be able to give you the full picture and in some ways if you only focus on what you can track you're missing out on a huge part of the pie that uh is the untrackable value of community absolutely
1: yeah i mean that like being a community manager is is being accountable without without complete control uh, or without complete being omniscient to the to the data and, and being able to track things so yeah I, I love that um in terms of your your mission to help people even even though you know that's not entirely due you know solely due to your efforts um to help them professionally but that's that doesn't mean it's not something you should really have as a, an earth
0: star Mm -hmm, Absolutely. All right. Cool. I think we are ready for our rapid fire question round. Everyone's favorite part of the show. Are you ready for the rapid fire question? I am ready. I'm ready. Are you sure you're ready? No one's ever ready, Eric. Okay. (laughs) As ready as I can be. All right. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others?
1: Cool. This one's easy. I am a huge World War I and sort of turn of the century history buff and Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman is my favorite book. Um, it tells the story of sort of the opening that first, you know, that first summer uh, and the breakout of World War One. I. I also just love the, just the way she paints sort of pictures of of the people involved. You know, you have all these, you know, kings and dukes and princes that are making you know decisions that'll impact the future of the world and they're all you know eccentric and strange and all related to each other uh, and then I also just love her story I mean she was sort of an amateur uh, historian uh, who ended up writing a you know her, I think second book was a Pulitzer Prize winner and and up you know a classic so I, I love guns of August and, and love giving it out to people
0: awesome I'll look for my copy in the mail Thanks. you got it <laughs> okay next question what's your wildest community story so
1: I have chronic knee pain. I tore my ACL playing soccer in like 2002. I've had five surgeries since then. I still, I got a new procedure last week. You know, I take medication for it. It's it's a big part. Uh, it's, you know, one of the reasons I moved to New York was because so I wouldn't have to drive a, in a car. Um, so it's really impacted my life. Yeah, you just, just have to
0: walk everywhere. You just That's have to walk everywhere, which actually, like,
1: <laughs> it doesn't hurt my knee as bad as, like, you know, uh, it's my right knee. So right. sitting still. Get yeah, like, uh, pumping the brakes or using the gas pedal. So I think it was actually before I joined Reddit, but somewhere around there, 2008, I created a subreddit, ACL, for people that, you know, have had anterior cruciate ligament problems. Early on, it was, it was pretty dormant. I kind of forgot that I created it and was the moderator of it. Uh, occasionally, you had people stopping in to say, hey... Can I take over the subreddit and make it for the uh, Austin City Lights, I think, which is a big, like, music festival. And then over, you know, what, 13 years, uh, it's slowly become a place for people to talk about knee problems, to talk about ACL surgery, to talk about, you know, post-op recovery. And it's just been really cool to see that happen over time. I take, you know, zero credit for it. I brought in other volunteer moderators. Um, who did a lot of the work and just the community slowly built up this really great supportive community. And if you, you know, are looking at knee surgery or had it and were, you know, struggling with PT or not sure if you'll be able to go snowboarding again or whatever, jump on there, someone will answer. So, but my experience, I've been really struggling. Uh, I've gone through a bunch of different doctors, uh, physical therapists, you know, orthopedic surgeons trying to figure out what's wrong, what's causing my knee pain. And, you know, this is one of those things where you know kind of like how community managers are bad at creating community it didn't occur to me to ask to turn on this amazing resource that i had actually helped create and ask people for input and ask people to help me figure out what was going on until very recently so we're talking like a year ago i posted to the acl subreddit and said hey i'm i'm this is what i'm experiencing um You know i had some weird results on my my last mri i think this screw is not exactly where it's supposed to be but my doctor can't figure out what's going on so someone chimed in and uploaded a a picture of, of their mri and anyway over time and we discovered that when they replaced my acl the adhesive that they used to connect the screw to the bone and giving me a new ligament that that adhesive is actually reacts poorly with a type of cortisone injection I had. This is a known thing. dissolved the adhesive, that screw then floated loose in my knee, causing havoc and pain and whatever. Um, and they don't use that combination of, of uh, adhesive and, and cortisone whatever injection anymore. So someone shared their information I took that to my doctor, kind of pointed us in the right direction and eventually figured out like, okay, this is part of what is causing the problem. So I'm not out of the woods yet. I still have knee pain, but at least now I know what's, what's going on and have a better picture of what's happening and know how to deal with that. And, you know, my doctor's been able to try some new things as far as treating it. And, you know, I also uh, can, can joke that I literally have a screw loose in my body, um, which is always fun, but uh, it's just, I don't know. It, it's wild to me because it took me, you know, 10 years to think like, oh, maybe I should ask the subreddit.
0: <laughs> a community you accidentally yes. started like 10 years ago, yes. ended up solving your knee problem for yeah. you. Yeah. So Love it. sometimes we forget what is under our nose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good example of community is just like, sometimes it just takes a long time, but it grows very organically. So much of the talk about community now is how do you scale it up, right? How do you launch it and scale it and grow it really fast? But the best communities sometimes grow over 10 years, 12 years, and just like really, really build gradually based on people just actually investing in it. So that's a cool story. All right, our next questions need a more rapid fire answer, Eric, or this is not gonna be our rapid fire question round. <laughs> I will do my best. All right, next question. What's a go-to community engagement tactic that you like to use in communities?
1: I love challenges. like. You know, 30-day challenges, 90-day challenges, 10-day challenges, I think it's a relatively new phenomenon. No one really owns it. It's very sort of grassroots. Mm-hmm. Um, most people have either done one or heard about one or want to do one, and it's a very flexible format. So it's this sort of container for basically um, something people do together that is you know, challenging, that is uh, a- a fun, that is difficult, but not too difficult, hopefully. And that, you know, you're going to kind of do with a specific outcome for a finite period of time. It's not, you know, right. it's, okay, I can try that for 30 days. I can not eat sugar or not drink alcohol or I can post on Twitter or my blog or whatever for 30 days. You know, it's kind of, I, I'm not committing for the rest of my life. Uh, so I think those are really great. It's very social. Mm. People enjoy the sort of accountability and social support. So we we're doing a lot of those at Teal. I studied those a lot when I was um, working in the sort of fitness community.
0: At Nike um, yeah do you have an example that's not fitness because I feel like fitness it's always clear it's like a health challenge or a workout challenge yeah what's a good example that's not fitness for a challenge to do in a community sure I mean so I think the original as far as I know the the
1: the first sort of daily challenge was actually this guy Matt cuts who is a a, uh, a Worked at Google and and you know was a sort of OG blogger and did a new vocabulary word of the day challenge um, and he actually did a, a TED talk about that and that's I don't know that's probably ten years old and that's sort of when challenges started to take off um, at Teal we do a we do different sort of career challenges so we have one coming up on evaluating different types of startups. And especially if you're transitioning from a different, you know, from big companies or higher education or sort of a business space, that's not a startup uh, understanding what are the different types um, and which ones, you know, might make the most sense for you and how to sort of break into or apply to the companies at different stages, because it's very different depending on if they are 10 people or a thousand people. Um, and so that challenge is just, you know, it's, it's over, it's basically over four weeks and we break it down into sort of like daily bite-sized tasks and you get to do it with other people. And yeah, it should be, should be fun.
0: Love that. Yeah. And it speaks to, I feel like cohort based courses are like the next big thing. Exactly. And everyone loves it because it's a group of people in a finite amount of time going through this education and, and completing it together. So love that. All right. Next one. Who's an up and coming community builder or creator that you recommend we follow? Cool. I'm going to give you two.
1: Jocelyn Shu at Pixar. PixArt is a really cool community. They do sort of uh, challenge competition-based uh, sort of visual arts. Jocelyn's an amazing community community manager there. And then uh, Sanmaya uh, Mohanty uh, created this guide for community managers. Uh, you can check it out at cmgr.page. I think he's in his early 20s. I was just really impressed with the sort of content he was able to put together. You know, points to a lot of resources. David, uses your spaces model. Um, but it was just cool to see all this sort of uh, disparate community management knowledge kind of collected in one place. And I was super impressed uh, with the person
0: who put it together as well. Love that. We'll include those links in the show notes for everyone as well. All right, next one. What's a community building technology or app that more people should be using?
1: Yeah. So I don't know the exact right term for this, but I would say sort of like spatial communities or asynchronous real life, meaning like yeah. Pokemon Go, right? Pokemon Go is, is, you know, it's huge phenomena. What's really amazing is that it worked across all age groups in a bunch of different countries. Um, so, you know, AR, the augmented reality is one way to do that. But you also have things like this summer, this app Randonautica blew up. If you're not familiar with it, it's fascinating. It's a very simple app. It just gives you a set of like coordinates within a certain radius of where you are. And you go and do basically a trip report on that coordinate. So, and people find all sorts of interesting things. So, especially during the you know sort of COVID lockdown, it's been an interesting way for people to sort of explore their their local community. I also am fascinated with this app called Aya. This is actually created by the Chickasaw Nation. It incorporates step tracking with like history, the language. There's words you can unlock different sort of stories based on how many steps you take. So I don't know. It's just that we all have these sort of like GPS, you know, tracking devices and maps in our pockets. And, and with us everywhere we go, I think there's a really interesting way to add community to that in a way that's sort of, yeah, it's it's real life. It's in the real world, but it's not necessarily synchronous. It's not, it's not a meetup. It's not a you know, people gathering at a certain time, but it is people gathering in space throughout time. So I think that's a huge
0: untapped uh, area of exploration. Mm, that's futuristic. Love it. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Oh, God.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> this one's easy. I don't like to talk about it because I'm sort of embarrassed, but uh, I actually worked for a cult um, in the early 2000s. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah. I, I, it's a long story how I got involved. I got involved through a, through a film that I worked on that was about them. I ended up doing some social media stuff. I never met any of the people involved, but... I was really impressed with how how they communicated, how they organized themselves. Cults are really good at yes. like social engineering. And this, was this was all virtual. This was all virtual. This was before Oh, wow. it was a virtual cult. Yeah, it was a virtual remote. I mean, I think they had, you know, the sort of uh the the leader, the the sort of guru would would, you know, travel and and there was people who traveled with him, but most everybody, I think, was all, you know, communicating via, you know, Facebook and and conference calls. And I was just impressed with the way they they organized stuff. One of my favorite things that I, I wish I had these sort of confidence and you know gumption to sort of pull off is they started every every meeting, every sort of virtual meeting, everyone would lay on the ground for like five minutes. And you're supposed to lay with like the the you know the guru's book over your heart. I didn't have any of his books oh, and I didn't believe in any of that. But like if everyone lays on the ground for five minutes before you start your conference call or Zoom meeting. With a book they love, I used I used our art history book because it was the sort of heaviest, most weighty book I had at the time. We would all have better conference calls, but that's like really awkward to bring mm. up and feels kind of goofy. But um, I guarantee it works, not not because of any sort of uh, uh, spiritual cult reasons, but just because like it puts us all in a better headspace. So I, that totally. was a very strange experience. Also because I never, to this day, I've never met anyone in person. So it was- What was it called? The leader was Master Shaw. Wow, ah, traditional Chinese medicine, but then he, he added right. a more uh, a, another layer to it.
0: Um, but I think it still exists. I don't know. Well, maybe I'll join. It's a good uh, tactic that I've been using as well, of kind of breaking the the cadence of everyone's Zoom meetings and calls. Like whenever I do a workshop or an event now, everyone's coming from another call or email. Like we're all just still looking at our screen. So I I love the idea of having people lay down, but you don't have to do that that something that intends to bring people back into the real world. One thing I just started doing in the start of my workshops is I have a little singing bowl and I'll do a ceremonial closing of tabs And I'll ding the singing bowl and have everyone close out their tabs, close their email, close their Slack, and just like come to the present moment. And something about like having a physical sound that kind of brings people more into their like physical space and makes them aware of all the things that are going on on their computer that is probably going to distract them for the next hour while I'm trying to teach them something in a workshop. People love it. Like, I, I end up teaching these workshops and I ask the teams for feedback afterward and, like, forget all the content. They're like, that singing bowl technique, like, we're definitely going to use that. So, um, I, I love that. I, I think, like, I love anything you could do to bring people back into their physical space before you kick off a conference call or a workshop or a clubhouse room, right? Like, what if we all did that yeah, here? Absolutely. I, mean, I may have to steal that. I'm laying on the floor right now. I'm not. <laughs> okay. Last question. It's the easiest one. Uh, If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world for how to live, what would that advice be?
1: We are the stories we tell ourselves.
0: Hmm. Why is that your advice?
1: I've just found it to be, I mean, one, I think it's true, uh, both as individuals, as communities, as cultures, as, you know, whatever group, uh, businesses. I also think that it's, it's, to me, it's instructive. It's like, okay, then, you know, if we're not happy with who we are, with what we are, then we need to tell better stories. Um, I think that's accessible, right? Like that, I mean, it's hard to do, especially when you're talking about, you know, cultures or large groups or, or even, you know, an individual making behavior change. But, but it's, it's like, okay, I can do that. I can, I can tell myself better stories. Um, and I just find that's true for we're, we're the stories we tell ourselves, whether we do that consciously or, or unconsciously.
0: Mm. Have you picked up any tactics for changing the story that you tell yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I try to limit,
0: you know, sort of negative stories
1: I, I tell myself, which is I'm, I'm definitely still a work in progress. Uh, but you know, negative self-talk—not uh, that you want to be all positive, but just like the, the stories, you know, I find a lot of those are are sort of stories that we picked up from from childhood, from you know, early experiences in in school, or 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 even the you know, sort of professional world. And we take things as givens the way, oh, I'm not good at that. Or, oh, I re-, you know, I get angry when that happens. And a lot of those are really the, just based on these stories we've repeated to ourselves. Also in, in community, I think, you know, the stories you repeat inside the community, the stories you amplify, that ends up defining the communities. And so, again, whether you totally. do that consciously, intentionally, or whether it just happens naturally, um, you know,
0: we are the stories we tell ourselves. Love that. Awesome. Eric, this is great. I uh, just want to say how much I appreciate you and all the work that you've done in the community space. I mean, you've been like trailblazing this industry for a long time now and um excited to see what you're doing now at Teal. I have no doubt that what you create there as a chief community officer will set a standard for other chief community officers. And you've always been very generous with sharing your lessons and learnings. So appreciate you. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with me today.
1: Thank you. Love, love chatting and, and love what you've built with, with CMX and, uh, you know, helping us all connect with each other.
0: Awesome. Thanks, man. Where can people go to find you and
1: continue to follow you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter, Huey Priest. Um, now that you know the backstory behind that name. And then on Reddit, Huey Priest as well. But most of what I post on Reddit is, is pictures of my dog. So if that sounds appealing, check it out. Uh, it if, does. If, if not, uh, you can find more sort of a community management
0: type stuff uh, is usually on Twitter. All right. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands.